This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 83. Hello my friends, happy Monday or happy whatever day it is you are listening to this. I have such a great conversation that I'm going to share with you all today. Not from me, I was actually having one of those super inarticulate slow brain days when we recorded it but my guest Anna who is a journalist and a podcaster she's amazing and she shares so much golden inspiration and insight and wisdom for anyone who is doing this freelance self-employed thing or maybe just thinking about taking that leap but before we dive into all of that I have a couple of things I want to share with you So the first is I am creating something new. It is a free community for all of you listeners. So creatives, business owners, Instagrammers, bloggers, side hustlers, daydreamers, you know who you are. And you know those Facebook groups for business owners, maybe some of you are members of them. It's going to be a bit like that, except completely the opposite as well. So not on Facebook. I don't want it to be stressful. I don't want it to have that hashtag hustle vibe. I don't want it to be a thinly disguised promotional forum for my own work. I don't want that kind of space. Instead, I'm trying to create somewhere where we can share resources and ideas. We can ask for help. We can support one another. And I'm hoping to rope in various creative friends to come in and maybe teach some live sessions occasionally, share their insights, just to make it a really valuable place that's worth your time and hopefully offers a little bit of support. I know I find whenever I run my classes, like the Insta Retreat, that have a community element, we find that there's a real craving for this, for a space with connection and community that's away from all of that noise of social media and the stress that can often come with that. So that's what it's going to be. I'm provisionally calling it The Flock, and to keep things manageable for kickoff, just so that we can get a feel for it, I'm going to be starting it as invitation only. That sounds very formal, but all it really means is you need to get on the email list. And then I'm going to send out the email when it's ready and invite everybody who's already pre-expressed their interest to come and be the founding members. So if you would like to be on that list, if you'd like to be one of the people that gets in there and helps me establish the space, you can go to the show notes for this episode, which are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 83. You can just look at the show notes in your podcast app and hopefully there'll be a clickable link there where you can sign up. Or you can just go to my website, meandorla.co.uk. At the moment, there is like a hello bar at the top, which takes you straight to the sign up page. If you're listening to this from the future, hello to you in your flying car with your holograms. Uh, you'll find it somewhere on my website, no doubt. It won't be too hidden away so yeah second thing to mention is uh you just heard me mention the insta retreat so this is my complete comprehensive best-selling online class for all things instagram mainly for creatives and for entrepreneurs and for business owners it is going to be going back on sale again at the end of this month so that's monday the 27th of january It usually sells out quite quickly. It's only open for a small window until we've filled all the spots. Sometimes that's just a couple of hours. So if you're thinking of joining me, do mark that on your calendar. Maybe set a reminder so you don't miss out. It's going to be amazing. I mean, I'm biased, but it is going to be amazing. I'm currently refreshing all of the content. I'm recording new audios. I'm so excited to share this latest revision with everyone. And of course, to meet my next group of fellow Instagram addicts and creatives. One of the things I've been doing to start this year is talking to a ton of my past students to find out where they're up to and what's happened for them since they took the class. And we've been recording some of the conversations to drop into the podcast. Oh my goodness. It has been... Like, I've been in tears reading and talking about what people have done since they took the programme. People just saying the most beautiful things and just the incredible ways that they've taken that learning and turned it into something so much bigger and life-changing, so much more than I could ever have imagined when I first set out to make this programme. People all over the world who were just doing incredible things. So stay tuned for some of those stories they'll be in some upcoming episodes and i'm probably going to sprinkle them out throughout the year and if you are ready to write 
a story just like that for yourself, then I would love to have you join me in this next upcoming class. So you can go to meandorla.co.uk, that's me and O-R-L-A, uh, click on the Insta retreat, it's there on the homepage, and if you're on my email list, you will get early notification and a reminder that it's going on sale. Okay, that is enough preamble from me for sure. Shall we have a chat with Anna? Okay, here she is. Hi Anna, welcome to Hashtag Authentic. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Could you give everyone the brief lowdown on who you are and what you do before we get started? Sure. So I'm Anna Codrado. I am a freelance journalist and I mainly write about work culture and how work is evolving and changing. I'm also a campaigner for freelance workers' rights, particularly around pay. Um, I host a podcast called Is This Working?, which is all about the impact of work on our lives. And I also write a newsletter about freelancing, um, which is called The Professional Freelancer. I love that your introduction feels a bit like whenever I try and introduce myself in that there's so many different strands and they're sort of unified by the topic, but you still need to explain them individually in order to fully encompass what you do. Yes, exactly. I feel that I know what I'm trying to do through all of my work, but there isn't a specific job title that encapsulates all of that. So I have to give the sort of full breakdown of all of the different components. How did you start out? Was it, it was journalism before everything else? Yes, it was journalism. So I pretty much knew I wanted to be a journalist uh, right when I was at university, actually, and started down that path. Um, actually got my very first job editing an alumni magazine for a university, which was a bizarre entry into journalism, <laughs> but nonetheless an entry, and worked in-house at various publications for quite a few years, um, and then went freelance in 2017, um, actually as the result of redundancy, which I think is kind of the path from that a lot mm. of people do end up taking. Um, and then things kind of snowballed from there. I mean, I'd still say that writing and journalism is pretty much at the core of what I do, but I've ended up doing all sorts of other things as well and still kind of taking, I would say, a very journalistic approach to everything that I do, but it's not traditional journalism. I'm not a reporter writing for a newspaper or a broadcast journalist or anything like that. So my job has definitely, definitely evolved over the years. I think you're a really good example of how the role of a journalist maybe needs to evolve. I don't know if that's a bit bold of me to say mm. that it needs to, but certainly a lot of people who are finding themselves made redundant or finding that there's not as much work available for the traditional model of journalism are needing to adopt these extra skills that you've kind of, you've nailed. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that there are few and the jobs in traditional media outlets are few and far between and also they can be quite static and not all news organizations are taking such an innovative approach to a what their journalists do but also the ins and outs and the mechanics of the actual jobs and journalists have a really really good skill set that they can use in all sorts of new ways not just um and ways that kind of you know there's sort of two impacts of this one one it perhaps gives you more stability or security than you might do in a traditional job. So really kind of, it sounds very counterintuitive, but I feel a lot more secure now that I am freelance than I ever did when I worked mm. in-house. In -house. Um, but then also it's just a completely new way of talking to people. So um, I've mentioned that I have a newsletter and the newsletter is about freelancing, but it's also what I consider to be a piece of service journalism in that it provides readers with useful information that they can then implement in their own lives and they it can kind of inform their decision making that is a form of journalism and I'm connecting direct with readers I'm not kind of go I'm not sort of speaking on behalf of a magazine or yeah. a newspaper yeah I'm not that kind of you know I'm not sort of speaking with that uniform tone of this sort of um a third kind of body um, and I'm connecting direct to readers. And I think that I find that um, it, it's funny because I've, I feel, I feel personally so much more fulfilled and like I'm actually making, even though my, my world is very small, I feel like I'm making much more of a difference than I ever did when I worked for large organizations. 
There's so much in there that I'd love to dig into. I know one of the questions that you asked me for your newsletter was about what lessons journalists can take from content creators. And I feel like you're kind of nailing finding that middle ground. I mean, the answer that I have written, I've not sent to you yet, um, basically was saying I feel like as a general rule, because this all has to be broad strokes, but I feel like journalists can learn how to nurture and kind of own their audience from one of the content creators. And I feel like the content creators could probably learn an awful lot from journalists about honing their craft and making their writing and their messaging so specific and high quality. Mm. I mean, this is, I think that's such a really excellent way of looking at it. And I think also, uh, this is something that I think a lot about, but there's something, there's I, at least how I perceive it, there's a kind of a tension between the content creator and the journalist community yeah. some, sometimes. And I think it's really, I think that's a real shame because I think there is so much to learn from each other. And I think it's not that one is sort of better than the other or anything like that. These are, these are quite distinct disciplines, but at the same time, there is so much overlap and there's so much rich material that, and lessons that you can learn from either side. And I think if sort of both content creators and journalists sort of were more embracing of one another, it would be really mutually beneficial. Um, and that point around audience, I think, is so bang on because ultimately that's the goal for both content creators and journalists. Yes. It's, to, it's to communicate and to engage and to inform and to help their audience and to grow their audience and to develop a relationship with them. Um, and that's the core goal, I think, of both groups. And so if that were focused on a bit more, I think I think everyone would be in a in a sort of more um, in a happier place, and also there would be more innovation and kind of more cross pollination, and and the internet and the all the internet problems would go away. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's a step too far, but um, but yeah, I think I think there could be there's so much room for collaboration. I think. Yeah, I totally agree, and I understand the tension, particularly from the journalist's perspective, because it, the reduced readership of so many of the online magazines and even kind of the the cheapening of the whole profession can kind of be traced directly to the, the amount of free content that is being made available largely by content creators. But it does serve a different purpose and it does have a different quality to it a lot of the time. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, maybe this is a really unpopular view for me to have, but I think one thing that doesn't really get talked a lot enough about is, is the, um, is the pay issue in all of this. Mm. So if I think of myself as a freelance journalist and, you know, I could take an article idea to an online publication, um, the rates that I might, might get paid for that really probably aren't that high. Yeah. There's a, there's a world in which actually maybe me thinking about, could I make this content part of my offering as a content creator? And would that be more financially beneficial to me? And, you know, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about journalists no journalist is in this game to to get to become a millionaire <laughs> but there's a difference there's a very big difference between just doing something just to get rich or or just to make a huge salary and also just make a decent salary um i've kind of i've i've done an exercise before on crunching the numbers of the average rate that an online publication pays and it's it, it would it's really hard to make a decent living off of that and to live in a major city um, and just to make make it work. So I think there's also, you know, from the from the point of view of if you think about it as a kind of financial decision, I think that's something that that isn't getting talked about enough. I completely agree. And I think the first time I messaged you on Twitter actually was after the pool closed. Yes. And there were so many journalists um, in this exact situation where kind of they'd lost a steady source of income and were looking as to what to do next. And I was saying, oh my goodness, like there are so many things that you can do in that situation. And I feel like you were the only person talking about it. So I was like... Let's talk yeah. about this together. Yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, that's that's I do. That's exactly how we kind of first connected, and it was um I was I was kind of seeing this all um, um sort of play out as well, and obviously so you know the pools are uh, women's um, was a women's um was a uh, website that um, published women's um, interest content and stories and and was a journalist site journalism site. Um, and it closed down because um, it ran out of money and it left um, loads of freelancers with unpaid invoices. And this was, of course, a huge, this is kind of like a, a, a massive deal. And it's the reason that I started my Fair, Fair Pay for Freelancers campaign. But in amongst all of this, there were some really, really talented writers. Or they, I mean, they're still out there. Um, and 
the first instinct is to think, and I had this when I got made redundant, your first instinct is, is to think, where do I get another job like the one I had? Yes. Rather than thinking, I have this, I have an existing audience, I have a really valuable skill set, I know how to write. Is there a way I could maybe do this on my own? Is there some world in which I could make a connection direct to my readers and either have them pay me or work with a brand or some other way to fund my writing, fund my journalism, you know, fund what I do? Um, and we're not quite there yet for people to be thinking about that and kind of knowing where to turn for those um, to those options and knowing where to turn to kind of create those opportunities for themselves. It's about ownership in the end, isn't it? Ownership of your own audience, mm. ownership of your own voice. And then that is something you can take with you to different jobs if you want to stay kind of an employment contract or you take it with you from publication to publication. But it's always yours to own in the gaps in between. Um, and there's some journalists we see who do this so well. I think of like Dolly Alderton as the perfect model for it mm. because she has her own audience within her own right and they will follow her to whatever publication she goes to, but she's not dependent on that. And if she decided she didn't want to write for any of the mainstream publications, she would still be able to make a decent living just by communicating directly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, it's, and, and you don't even have to actually be, you don't even have to have a huge following. No. You just have to have an engaged following and you have to own your the area that you operate in and, the, and your area of expertise. Um, you know, in Dolly's case, obviously, that's love and female friendships and, and dating. But it doesn't have to also be that big either. It can be something as niche as freelancing or um, I have a, a friend who recently started a newsletter all about um, being single. Her newsletter is called The Single Supplement. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, her name's Nicholas Lawson. And, um, yeah, and, and she's just owning that space. And you don't have to have kind of the sort of, you don't have to have those followers in the kind of, in the absolutely huge numbers. It's all about engagement. Which is exactly the same message for content creators that people are always trying to drive home because there is this idea that it needs big numbers. But actually, as long as you have a loyal and engaged audience of any size, you've got something of value. There's kind of an impression that in order to do that, and the, the, the couple of examples you just gave there, they all tap into the person as a brand and becoming more than just a writer who's anonymous perhaps behind the page, but somebody that people feel that they know a little bit about, feeling like you have to dig into your own life to create that content. Do you think that's inevitable? It's a really tricky one. It's something that I think about a lot as I kind of go on this journey. And I think I think a few things. First of all, people, and I'm sure you experience this all the time, but people, the minute you say personal brand, um, <laughs> people get very agitated. <laughs> but my view of a personal brand is really just knowing why you're doing something. And it's almost much more of a, almost more of an introspective exercise that anyone should do, regardless of whether they yes. live on the internet or not. Um, and maybe we need to sort of stop using the word personal brand and just think about it as sort of purpose. Um, and so there, there's, there's that kind of issue. Um, but then also, you know, if I think about it, if I think about my own um, content and my own writing and sort of my own brand, so much of it is about freelancing and work culture and different ways of working. That obviously inherently brings me into it, but it's not bringing all of me mm. into it. I'm not talking, I don't really talk, pub, you know, on social media, I don't talk that much about what I do in my life outside of work. Um, I don't kind of, I don't share super intimate elements of my life. Um, that's something that, you know, it's the space that I, that this is how I kind of feel comfortable navigating this whole space. Um, and also for myself, I just also remind myself that you know, the Anna that everyone sees online is sort of Anna, the freelancer who talks about freelancing, <laughs> but that I know that outside of that, there is a lot more to me. And I sort of have to remind myself of that, but it is a really tricky one. It's a really hard one to navigate. It's something that I'm kind of almost, I'm sort of on my own kind of journey with as well. Sort of, I try to separate out the newsletter as just a, uh, almost like an arm of my business and also the newsletter as something that's very personal to me. Um, and yeah, I don't, I definitely don't have a very sort of clear answer for that but I do think you know to your point that people might feel apprehensive about do I have to mine my own personal life or even my own traumas just to kind of grow an, uh, a following online yeah. like that, that 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 I think you don't like you know I haven't done that 
And I think there are plenty of people out there who can write about things that they feel really strongly about that aren't necessarily super, super personal to them. I totally agree. And I think it's very easy to look at someone, say someone like Dolly Alderton and feel like you know her whole life. Yeah. But not really ever stop to think about all the things that she very intentionally doesn't share. Um, because it's out of sight, out of mind. And I I meet people in real life and I know that they feel like they know me completely. And then I'll say something about an area of my life I never cover and it's a complete surprise to people. So I guess it comes down to boundaries and knowing yourself what you are and aren't comfortable making a part of that public brand. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like, it's a really tricky one as well. Also being on the receiving end of it. So because I talk so much about payment for freelancers, um, and actually it's funny because, you know, just this morning before we we, we um, did this recording, um, I've been on Twitter kind of banging my drum about payments for freelancers. And what actually happens a lot to me is that I get messages and emails and um, DMs from people who are in a really, really bad way financially as a result of late payments. And they just pour their hearts out to me with this. Um, and I think it's because I put myself out there as a person who talks about this. Yeah. But then it's really hard for me to then know what to do with people who are coming to me in a crisis. Mm. Um, because, you know, I can't, I can't help individuals who are not getting paid on time. Um, all I, obviously all I can do is listen and amplify stories where I can, but it's also takes a, takes does take a toll on the um person at the receiving end of lots of messages about something really hard and i know people who work in the mental health space and they get very distressing messages from people um and it's a real challenge when you kind of you want to have that relationship but it's based i mean as you've kind of said it all comes back to boundaries and how you navigate how you navigate them how you set that how you put them in place um and how you kind of help people in a but also allow, try and help them help themselves as well. And I suppose that's quite a marked difference from the more conventional role of a journalist where you did have a buffer between yeah. your work and your audience. Um, and I know things like the comment sections on websites mm. started to blur that line a little bit, but even then it, it felt that the journalist was kind of a little bit more protected. Whereas to do what you're doing, you have to get right in the trenches and, and be more accessible to your audience directly. Mm. but then there's so many advantages that come with that too yeah exactly of course I mean I wouldn't have it any other way I think that you know I I figure out ways of handling these situations I figure out ways of maintaining boundaries and um and I'm very happy to do that if it means that I've actually got a genuine connection with the people that I'm um that are reading my work and it, I find it informs so much of my work, those conversations, because you hear how your whatever you're putting out into the world, how it's being received, and you get that direct feedback of, oh my gosh, this one thing has blown up, or this one thing has not been received in the way I expected it to be. And then you can turn that into the next piece of content or the next thing that you want to share. Well, yeah, I mean, to kind of go back to everything we've really been talking about here, which is the sort of evolving role of the journalist, it's it's basically that's excellent kind of shoot at the reporting in a way that's the that is the sort of old school journalist, you know, going out and actually living and breathing their their beat, which basically means the area that they they that they yeah. cover and actually kind of developing relationships with you know people on the ground in their communities learning learning the actual issues and things that are happening so that they can report on it really really well I hadn't really thought of that but it's true it's kind of the old original model of journalism yeah and it seems like and, and correct me if I'm wrong because this is kind of an outsider's perspective but it seems like increasingly now especially for the big website publications that role of choosing what's covered and assessing how well content performs is not given to the journalist it happens elsewhere in another department and it's based so much on advertising revenue and clicks and everything else that kind of the impact of the story is perhaps being a little bit lost yeah I mean I uh, you know when I was um working internally especially when I worked um in, when I was a music journalist, so much of what you write is driven by the PR cycle and the, um, you know, if you're writing about music, it's the album release cycle and you're being basically fed the news by a corporate machine. Um, and the journalists are all chained to their desks. No one is going out there and finding stories. Your re you know, your best stories pretty much often come from your freelancers pitching them to you. And, 
you're not, you know, you're not really kind of doing that shoe leather reporting in the way, you know, compared to now when I'm, I, now that I'm freelance, I pretty much filter all of the, I can't seem to stop them coming, but I pretty much filter all of the PR emails that I get into another folder and have put on a filter so that they get marked as um, red. And I basically don't even see them coming, coming my way because I don't, I don't need to rely on that to tell me what stories to pitch and what the real issues are. I'm, I'm getting that direct from the communities that I'm covering. Yes. And it's just not audience. So like I have such a bugbear about the whole hook, the whole press hook thing, because yeah. <laughs> I just don't know who it serves. I don't know who is like, oh, well, International Pie Day is coming up. I can't wait to read some <laughs> pie related articles. It just seems like an archaic structure that when all this data and all this information and all this connection and communication is available, and so it's it feels like a really natural thing for a journalist who gets into it because they want that connection, they want that creativity to take ownership in the way that you can when you go freelance. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Let's talk about your newsletter because we've, we've touched on it a couple of times, but I feel like we've not dug into it properly. So the newsletter, did you start that when you first went freelance after you'd been made redundant? Yes, so I started it um, the exactly a week after I got made redundant. Huh. And I started it because I didn't know what was going to happen. I decided to give freelancing a go, um, you know, straight away. So I got made redundant on a Friday and at the Monday I was sat at my desk kind of saying like, I'm a freelancer now. Um, but of course, because it was, um, a very sort of unexpected shock situation, I didn't know how long it would take me to get commissions. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'd never freelanced, um, before. So, I decided to start a newsletter um, because I wanted an anchor for my week. So I wanted to impose a deadline so that I would have somewhere to write something and, you know, put it out there in some form or another. Um, so that you didn't just exist in pyjamas doing nothing for days on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I didn't really have much of a plan as to what exactly this newsletter would contain, <laughs> um, but that that was kind of the... Um, sort of thinking behind it. And that was sort of why I started it. Um, and also the reason I decided to go for a newsletter rather than say an Instagram account or a blog or anything like that is that I am a big newsletter reader. So, um, at the time I was reading, um, Dolly Alston's getting so much airtime on this, um, in this <laughs> interview, but I was reading, um, Dolly's, uh, newsletter at the time, which, um, she doesn't write anymore, but, um, I was reading that. I was reading the, um, Lenny letter, which also no longer exists. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and Friedman's newsletter, um, and a whole bunch of others. Anyway, so I'm a big newsletter consumer. So I, it felt like that's, that's an area that I know and I feel comfortable in, and that's the one I want to kind of explore um and it very much started with me just emailing a handful of friends saying I'm starting this newsletter please opt in um and I just started writing about my very first newsletter was about you know what happened how I'd got made redundant how I decided to give freelancing a go um and then over the weeks I experimented with all sorts of different things I tried to sort of do more of um, a cultural critique because uh the area that I was writing on at the time was much more about music and culture. So I sort of tried to make my newsletter time with that um, and really quite struggled, if I'm honest. At the beginning, I sort of, I really struggled to find what I wanted to write about. And I ex sort of tried out putting different um, sections of the newsletter in place. Um, and um, by, I think it was by the end of the, so I went freelance in the summer and by the end of the year, I was really struggling to keep up with the news, uh, sort of to the newsletter started becoming a thing that I was dreading writing. <laughs> so what I did is I actually wrote in my newsletter to, I don't, by this point, maybe I had, I don't know, hundred subscribers, um, maybe less. And I said to them, what do you enjoy about this newsletter? What would you like to see more of? Um, what do you actually, what, what do you want from this? Because I just really kind of didn't know what direction to take it in. And the overwhelming response I got was we really enjoy when you talk about your experience as a freelancer and we enjoy the advice you give. And we also really like when you kind of link to, you do it. I do a little roundup of other stories that I've been reading that week. Um, and so I had a conversation with um, my very good friend, Tiffany Philippou, who is also my podcast co-host. Mm -hmm. And her background is all in branding um, and um, for startups, but also, I mean, it's the same principle applies everywhere. So she pretty much helped me have me do a mini branding exercise on myself and on like my new, like why I was doing the newsletter um, and got me to be really, to think about 
you know, why am I doing this? And to get really clear on what I kind of hope to actually do with my content and what sort of impact I'd like, like it to have on readers. And so after I sort of did that exercise, um, I changed the name to the professional freelancer and I just focused the newsletter entirely on my freelancing experience, um, and lessons that I'd learned from my own journey. And so it's this kind of hybrid of me sharing what happens to me, but also presenting that as, um, I guess advice basically, and a kind of how to freelance. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how it evolved. Um, and earlier this year, I also, um, moved over to a newsletter provider that allows people to pay a subscription to get additional newsletters. Ah. Yeah. So what's that platform called? It's called Substack. Um, uh-huh. I, I highly recommend it because it is, um, it's also, it's free no matter how large your e- email list is. So I got to the point on MailChimp where I was starting to pay to send the newsletter. Oh, it gets really expensive really quickly. gets really expensive really quickly. And because the newsletter is still to this day, my absolute favorite thing that I do in my whole business, um, I spend a lot of time on it and I think a lot about it. And I got to the point where I was, um, then paying to write it. Um, and as someone who talks a lot about making freelancing sustainable, it do- that was not sustainable. <laughs> um, so I thought about different options I had to, um, bring in, bring in basically revenue for the newsletter so that it, it would be, um, viable for me to continue writing it. And I felt most comfortable with the idea of actually going direct to the readers because then I'm able to offer them, it's almost like then in my mind, they're my shareholders um, and yeah. they are my they are my community and they're the ones who I am completely accountable to. And they're the ones who I'm always kind of in my mind thinking, like, am I really serving their needs? Um, so, yeah, so you Substack and you can if you don't ever turn on paid subscripts, paid the paid option, it's free to use no matter how large your, your list size is. And then if you do offer paid subscription, um, they have the kind of back end to support that as well. I need to look into that. It's not one that's been on my radar before. It's very, it's very new. It's very ah. new. So, and it sounds like it lends itself more to the kind of long form reading style of newsletter, which yeah. a lot of the other platforms have kind of moved away from now because more and more people are just sending promotional newsletters. Exactly. So, so something like Mailchimp, a very valuable tool for marketers who are trying to either. Um, uh, promote something else or the aim of the newsletter is to sell something. So the aim of the newsletter is to get, is to have a call to action. There is no, in the type of newsletter I write, there is not, the call to action is just to read the content in the inbox. So I don't want my readers going anywhere else. I want them sticking in the, in that email and just reading what's in there. So, um, and Substack lends itself really, really well to that. Um, if anything, it's kind of, I sort of think of it more as, a mini publication in email format, um, mm. or almost kind of, almost kind of like a, a blog in an email rather than a newsletter. Yes. I, when people are wondering what to write to their newsletter subscribers, which happens quite a lot, I often say like, think of it as if it's your column, like you've been given mm. a column, you get to choose what exactly. the topic is. And every week or every month you show up and you write your column. But that explains that feeling you had at the beginning of kind of overwhelmed because there's there's unlimited options as to what you could write your column about, but you need to pick one. Like you couldn't just show up one week and be like, hey, parenting, and the next week be like travel, and the next week be like cleaning. So it sounds like you honed your topic in direct response to your audience, and that's kind of how you've then changed the course of a big chunk of your work in your business. Yeah, exactly. And um, this is something I think I've heard you talk about before as well, kind of the difference between being a freelancer and a small business owner yeah. and kind of having something that you sort of hang, a central peg that you hang all of your work off. And um, it doesn't really matter if you have lots of different strands of how you do that work. In fact, if anything, it's better if you have lots of different revenue streams, but just being really clear on what that core peg is. Um, and I think that's very much, you know, that advice I think is also just as applicable to freelancers as it is small business owners, but it's just sort of being really, really clear about why you're doing this thing. And for me, actually, it's actually since kind of, and you know, that may evolve. So for me, it started around sort of showing that freelancing is sustainable um, to kind of 
thinking about work culture as a whole and thinking about how we can all be making work better, whether that's in traditional employment or whether that's as a freelancer. Um, and so I, I kind of think for me, that's my central peg that, and everything I do fits in around that. It's almost like, yeah, that's, that's the business and the freelancing work is like a strand of your business. It's one of the revenue streams of the broader business. Um, Jen Carrington and I on our joint podcast, we did an episode not long ago on freelance mindset versus the having a business mindset, because it is just a, a mindset change. Nothing tangibly really has to change in order for you to switch from one to the other. But it is interesting how a lot of the time people who have been freelancing for a really long time can get into the situation where you feel like you're being pulled in lots of different directions and you're waiting and you're at the beck and call of other people to hire you. Um, so it's very difficult to make any plans. Whereas when you see yourself as a business owner, you take more of a kind of strategic leadership role and you're able to perhaps kind of steer the ship a little bit more than in that reactive way of kind of sticking in the freelancer mindset. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And, um, you know, it's saying that I very much experienced, you know, when I first went freelance and because it was an accident and because I felt like I was on the back foot, of course, I just said yes to everything that came my way. <laughs> yes. And that's, and that, and that's absolutely fine. I, you know, I had to, um, and it was just really important for me to carve out some time after I'd been, you know, after I'd been freelancing about six months, I actively carved out some time and almost did a kind of, um, uh, well, I sort of did an away day for myself, basically. And I sort of looked at everything that I'd done. I figured out what I enjoyed. And then I started actually making plans to give some shape to what my freelancing would look like. Um, and that was so important and so kind of transformative. Um, it's kind of that exercise really just sort of set me up um, just to be able to just have just have a bit more strategy and just have a have a plan for which just enables me then to to know how how to say no to something and when to say no to something. Yeah, because you see how it aligns or doesn't align with the business and with the the broader goals. And also then I think it makes it much easier to look at things in that strategic way you said where you're like, well, hang on, I can get £200 writing about this for like this magazine or I can write about it for myself but monetize it directly or I can make it into a product that I can sell directly to my audience or I can host an event on this subject and sell tickets and looking at it kind of, well, which is going to be the way that serves the audience best and which is the way that's going to be the most lucrative. Yeah, exactly. My birds are going nuts. I think they're a fan of you. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a few questions that I feel like might have been popping into people's heads as they've, as they've heard you talk about this, just kind of the last the last few topics we've touched on. So first of all, how did you then grow your newsletter audience from that initial bunch of subscribers? So really interestingly, once I became very specific about what I was writing about and consistent, it started to grow quite quickly and quite significantly. Once the newsletter became known as the resource that freelancers should be reading, it then got shared amongst other freelancers. And it it just kind of, the, just the jump I saw even in the first couple of weeks of me sort of, and I announced in the newsletter that, you know, there are going to be some changing changes here. This newsletter is going to be about um, my journey as a freelancer and things I've learned and applicable advice and tips for other freelancers. Even just in those couple of initial weeks, I saw quite a big jump. Um, and then also I got quite a big jump as, again, this is all related, some other lot, some other um, newsletters sort of in this space. There are a couple of um, really great newsletters which um, round up freelance job postings. So, uh, yeah. so there's one by... Um, Sean Meads Williams called Freelance Writing Jobs and she very often will mention my newsletter and we're kind of like we're, we're now sort of you know we're now freelance friends and we're sort of really you know often kind of cross-pollinating and amplifying each other's work so she was giving me um quite a boost um and a couple of other larger newsletters recommended it as well um, and then interestingly again to kind of go back to Substack when I switched over to Substack I actually also noticed an initial jump and then a steady continuous growth um, and I have thought about why that is and I think it's because um, Substack provides a much more shareable piece of content so that 
the emails don't exist just as emails. They actually also have a essentially kind of like a blog page as well. So what I've really noticed is since moving to Substack, every Friday when I publish my newsletter, people then share it on Twitter as well as a standalone. Uh, yes. Yeah, as a standalone piece of content. Um, and I can see from the um, from the analytics side on my end with the dashboard, I can see that it's getting read. It's also it's having a life outside of the inbox as well. So people are reading it um, who haven't haven't subscribed to it and haven't received it as an email. So it gets some views that way as well. Um, so, but I mean the the real core I think for you know because and I used to get served these ads all the time about you know how to grow your newsletter really fast and yeah. Pinterest tips for email growth and all of this. And actually all of it, you know, maybe some of those tips work, maybe they don't, but I think underpinning all of that is a key message that serves the reader and consistency. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The consistency is a tricky one for so many people and and you do this weekly. So I wonder. Bi-weekly. Okay. So have you struggled? Have there been periods of time where you have struggled? Yes, they have. I mean, what's basically happened is it's gone from I would write about whatever popped into my head. So I, I send the new, so I send the free free version on a for the sort of the main newsletter, which is still free. I send that on a Friday, and it used to be the case that on a Thursday, more more likely than not, a Friday morning, I would write about whatever popped into my head. Now I have an editorial calendar, and I think yeah. more. I have, you know, I think more in advance, and I plan all my content out. Um, it. I would say that when I took the jump of of offering the paid um, the paid version, that's when things started to feel a bit more. Um, I guess pressurized is the right word to mm-hmm. use. Um, the stakes felt a lot higher because you know ultimately people are paying for this content and it needs to be consistent and it needs to be high quality and I need to continue to be and I need to be delivering this reliably. So, um, it but it really all it meant was that I carved out some time you know I have I have time carved out every week and of course the other you know the other thing to be very kind of candid about is that because it now does bring in some revenue it means that I've been able to drop other projects that weren't really serving me and my vision and my business and make space to give more time to write the newsletter and prepare it and plan it and everything um but no there were definitely some moments where I kind of felt overwhelmed and felt oh my god you know people are paying for this now and am I delivering a high enough standard um is do I have enough time to do this there's nothing like putting a price tag on something to stir up all the self-doubt and <laughs> resistance oh about goodness. it but I guess that also nobody like a journalist to get something done to a deadline no matter how much they might not feel like they want to write it well, yeah, exactly. That's, you know, that is the thing that there are, uh, you know, I had very good training in that, that there's no world in which this cannot be done. Like you you have to find the time to hit this deadline. I think it's really interesting as well that you talked about the Twitter shares, because there is a sense a lot of people have around their newsletter content where they want to keep it ring fenced and you have to be on the list to see it. And they feel like people aren't going to sign up if they can get it elsewhere. But in theory, someone could not sign up to your newsletter and just do it the hard way and find it via Twitter or something every every week. But I think that this really goes to show that, that it's, it doesn't need to be this kind of hard sell. It doesn't need to be this tension about getting people on the list. It's much more, you, your approach is much more about creating something of high value and trusting that the right people are going to be mo- motivated to consume that in whatever way it needs to look like for them. Yeah. And this is actually, it's really interesting you bring this up because this is where working in-house at or at, in news organizations where, um, you know, the paywall, although yeah. I've never worked at, I've never worked at a place where they actually um, had a paywall, but, um, you know, regardless, paywall conversations um, were ones that I was privy to throughout all of the time I've worked in-house. And a piece of Uh, sort of advice or kind of a sort of ethos that I heard at some point that really stuck with me is you're not fussed you know people will if people will find a way to get around the paywall and don't waste your energy on them waste your energy on making sure the ones who are prepared to pay and stay within stay in your paywall focus on them um so you know there are lots of people who will kind of look in their incognito browser and get around (laughs) get around all of the paywalls it doesn't you know doesn't matter about trying to convert them it matters about offering the people who do pay the best quality and looking after their needs and making sure that you're listening to what they want and you're serving them um and also ultimately 
if your content is good and serves a purpose and sort of um, fills a gap in the market, people will people will pay. Um, and you know, the, also the reality of, of paywalls is that you don't need or want everyone to pay. Um, it's you're just exploring a revenue stream that just enables the whole thing to work. And what you're offering to your paid members is a sort of add-on. It's additional content. It's um, it's something either deeper or kind of a special report or data or something that you're giving them that you're not going to be giving on your free list. But, you know, and this is, this is the other thing that I've thought a lot about is ever since turning on paid subscriptions, I have felt that, or at least I hope, and at least my intention is that actually the free version of the newsletter has also improved as well um, because it's all part of the same thing. And it's also part of the same vision and the same message. And being able to bring in some revenue has enabled the whole thing to improve across the board. Yeah, I think that that's really key. And I guess the other question that's in my head that I think people might be asking is, when did you start your newsletter? 2017, July 2017. So I was hoping you were going to say that it wasn't too long ago, because I think people feel sometimes, rightly or wrongly, that newsletter heyday has passed. A little bit like people feel this way about blogging, and especially the long form content newsletter. But yours is recent, and it's you know it's shaped your business by the sounds of it, and it's it's a revenue stream for you. It's one of the most popular things that you do. So what would you say to anyone who is feeling like they've missed the boat or it's too late for them to start something like that? It's absolutely never too late to start anything. Um, So I think that people who think they've missed the boat on newsletters are the people who just really, really want to write newsletters. Um, There's so much kind of nonsense out there about you know we're at peak podcast we're at peak newsletter we're at peak blog whatever we're 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 not um you know if you just I what I like to do is I like to think about books and I like to think how you walk into a bookshop and there are so many books out there and there are kind of two ways of looking at that you kind of think like oh my god there are so many books like what possibly could I do to add value here the other way is looking at it is there is so much space here for everyone and there are so many different ideas and there's so much rich and varied content. And, you know, no one's really talking about like, oh, we're a peak book or we're a peak <laughs> yeah. movie or anything like that. So it's, true. Just, it's I think it's just to do with the fact that these are new media form and sort of people don't know what's going to happen with them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I honestly think, you know, I think, you know, I don't, I think that even if you wanted to start a blog, you know, it's go, go with the medium that just feels most comfortable to you. Like I said, at the very beginning, I went with newsletters because I feel like I know them as a reader. Um, I only started a podcast really recently because that felt like really unknown territory to me. Um, and it's funny because we, um, we started the podcast the week after the New York times piece that was literally titled, we're at peak podcast. <laughs> um, and I, and I just don't believe it. I mean, we've had, um, we've had really decent, you know, we, we've grown an audience. Um, we've already, you know, we've already grown a, um, a fairly decent audience or an audience that we're really happy with. And, and it's the same is true for newsletters. It's, you know, it's the same with, I'm sure you hear this all the time about people saying there's no point starting an Instagram account. Totally, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, sure. Be mindful that the platforms may change and, you know, what you do today might, be different to what you do in tomorrow or in a month's time or in a year's time but the whole kind of the the excitement of all of this is that these are new for these are new ways to deliver content and you get to set your own rules um and just start um but the real key as i I just have will emphasize that the two really key points are make sure it's actually serving your readers and just be consistent and just keep doing it and push through the part where you think, oh God, yeah, you will hit a plateau, <laughs> yes. you will. Yeah, because the rewards don't come until a little bit later, do they? Yeah, no. I mean, put it this way, no one was asking me about my newsletter two months into it. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love the bookshop analogy. I've not heard that before, but it's perfect as well because you can walk into a bookshop and 
find nothing that you want to read, nothing you want to buy, even the hugest bookshop, you can still be like, no, what I'm looking for isn't in here. And the same for movies, like how many times do you sit down in front of Netflix and you're like, there's just the thing I want to watch doesn't exist today. Exactly. And that's where you can start creating. And of course, like if you walk into a bookshop and you're like, I want to write what Brené Brown's written, you're going to already find that. There's no point trying to do what's already been done. But it helps us, knowing that I think really helps us hone in on a message that's unique to us or filling a gap in the market. And that's where the magic can really happen. Exactly. Exactly. We should talk about fair pay for freelancers. You touched on it earlier. How did that first come about? Was that, you said, was when the pool went bust? Yeah. So um, fair pay for freelancers is a campaign that I started in um, February of this year, 2019. Um and it was all around how the media pays its freelancers. Um, and it's an issue that I pretty much stumbled across basically right at the beginning of my freelancing. <laughs> and after I got my first couple of commissions, I realized that getting paid was going to be a huge issue. Um, so, you know, all freelancers have have pretty similar experiences of maybe they'll get um, invoices paid late or they'll really kind of have to fight to get their invoices paid and they'll be chasing um, accounts teams and all of this kind of stuff. Um, There's a particular quirk in journalism where you can't typically actually invoice for your fee until after a piece has been published. So you may have already been you might have been commissioned you might have done the work you may have filed it you may have even had it approved and everything's absolutely fine but then the piece is delayed the publication of the piece is delayed either because of um the news cycle or you know whatever it might you know there's a million reasons why the piece might not get published that quickly um and you won't be able to invoice until it's actually out there and on that website or in that magazine or whatever it might be um and so you're looking at possibly months between fight between actually getting the work agreed and then um actually seeing the money in your account so that's one kind of massive issue um and what happened with so i was already thinking about this and i was talking to other freelancers and very much the consensus was yeah well you know this is how things are and it sucks but it's just the way things are um but then what happened with the pool is it went bankrupt and it closed and all of the overpaid, all of the overdue invoices for freelancers never went, never got paid. And that even, and I, by the way, I'd never written for the pool and I had nothing to do with the pool. So I was just kind of watching this as someone from the outside. But that was a moment where it clicked for me that as a freelancer with an overdue invoice, you are essentially a creditor Mm. to a large business. And if it does go under, which in the media world is actually, it's not that rare for it to happen. It will happen. Um, you very much you're very likely to never see that money because you are a your creditor on a huge line you know there are lots of other people ahead of you and yeah. you just you just won't see that money um and so um i launched the campaign and in practice what that looks like is i basically spoke to a bunch of freelancers and i put together this google doc which was an open letter calling on media bosses to pay its freelancers fairer, better and faster. Um, And the three specific asks I have in that letter are an end to this payment on publication practice, um, a respect of late payment fees, because there are actually laws that protect freelancers, but because of the power dynamic between the freelancer and the large companies, typically these these, um, laws just get ignored Mm -hmm. or or broken. Um, And um, an update to unfit for purpose payment systems because another thing that a lot of freelancers say is that something that holds holds up payment for them is just that in you know the the um financial systems that companies use are just really out of date and slow mm-hmm. and, clunky, and clunky and then you know, there's lots of kind of gaps um gaps and um that your sort of invoice can fall through um so yeah so um that campaign had a really, really great response. It's been signed. It's an open letter and um, it's been signed by over a thousand journalists and has had kind of quite a lot of traction on social and got picked up by a few publications that wrote about it. Um, I mean, the next phase for the campaign is to somehow actually now just get media companies to actually do something about it. And this is the bit that is really kind of tricky um, because I am a freelance journalist (laughs) and not, not a kind of trained campaigner or or activist so um actually kind of taking this to the next 
phase has been, I think, quite challenging for me. And also I'm someone who I'm a natural born fixer and I'm a solution finder. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I can't find one, I just find it unbelievably frustrating. But what I have to to remind myself is that, A, at least we're having these conversations and B, at least freelancers are coming together and being more and being very collegiate and being very supportive of each other. and I have heard kind of rumblings of various companies at least starting to think about these things. Um, and so change will come about slowly, but at least hopefully it feels like maybe it's tracking in the right direction. Yeah, I, it's a funny one because it would be such good press, ironically enough, for any of these publications to adopt it and to take a stance and say, we are going to be the first ones to to mm. make this our policy. But I suppose it suffers from that thing that so many freelancers suffer from where for now they can always just go elsewhere. Like if you turn up with these demands and say, I'll write for you, but under these conditions, it's very easy for a big publication to go, oh, well, we'll just get her to write it over there instead then because she'll agree to our unreasonable payment terms still. Yeah, it's that's the thing. And that's why I do think the kind of it's a really important element of all of this kind of campaigning effort is actually to get freelancers talking to each other and supporting each other and knowing who the bad players are amongst each other. And, and the freelancers who can, I think it's important to either call out companies or refuse to work for them um, and take more of some kind of um, collective action in some mm. or another, um, because we don't really have unions. We don't have that sort of kind of power of, of numbers unless we create it for ourselves and um i think that is a really important part of it and and the reality is i think that there are um you know i've seen more recently i've seen more freelancers naming and shaming on twitter which i do have i have kind of mixed feelings towards but it has in some cases it has resulted in the freelancers fee being paid so we are seeing at least some at least in some pockets we're seeing a little bit of improvement but it shouldn't be the case that you have to call out a company no get your invoice paid I mean I've had to do that with influencer work in the past with brands but that feels a little bit safer because it's not so much biting the hand that feeds you which I guess is the situation a lot of journalists might find themselves in if they're writing regularly for a publication and they're regularly messing them around it's not quite a safe decision to to make them unhappy with you yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it's just this, the power dynamic is just yeah. not in your favour. That's that's a really big part of all of this. If people want to get involved or support the campaign, what's the best thing they can do? Um, so if they go on my Twitter, which is at Anacod, my pinned tweet is the open letter um, and you can read it. Um, and there is also a link to a Google sheet where you can um, add your name and then I just add it to add it to the list as well um and just generally kind of if you follow me on socials that's where I sort of talk most about the campaign and um anyone who has any sort of campaigning advice I'd be more than open to hear it because um like I said I am at I'm at a point where I'm kind of thinking okay and how how do I take this to the next step yeah my brain's churning as well I feel like if you could just get one big organization to sign up to it that would give you the pressure then to go to everyone else and say are you going to pledge as well because these guys have and and get that momentum so if anyone's listening and is (laughs) is the editor of a major news site you never know right Um, you never know you never know yeah come come over to the light side with us and get this sorted because there's a thread going around at the moment I mean we're we're recording this it's it's coming up to Christmas and Kat Molesworth from Blogtacular I think you'd retweeted it as well she just put out a tweet that said freelancers how much how much money are you waiting on at the moment of overpaid of overdue invoices and it's in the thousands for most people yeah yeah I've um I've been hearing, I was um, tweeting as well also about kind of, you know, companies needing to pay their freelancers in time for Christmas. And I'm getting freelancers messaging me, um, telling me how much, how many thousands of pounds that they're owed. And it's just, um, it just, it's really, really upsetting, to be honest, um, is kind of, I find it really hard to hear. And you're just, I'm kind of just thinking like, I really hope that they make this payment, this, you know, that this payment cycle, this side of the year, because I think what companies don't realize is that, yes, an individual invoice might be for a small amount. If all of the companies and all of the invoices that you're owed are overdue, that's when it really starts, that the cumulative effect, that's when it starts to become really, um, that's when it starts to really take a toll. 
And yeah, it's, it's also just, it's exhausting and emotionally draining chasing money. And there's a lot of shame attached to it. And yeah, I just, I really feel for people who, who are owed these owed. And this is the thing, it's owed money for work that is done and being used. And it's just, yeah. it's just deeply unfair. It's deeply unfair. And the people who are not paying the invoices are getting their pay every month to deliver straight to their bank account. No questions asked. Exactly. Anna, where else can people find the rest of your work to dig into more? Um, so I am at Anna Cod on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and to be honest, if you look me up on either of those, you can find um, all of the links to everything else. Um, and also my own podcast as well is called Is This Working? Such a good name. Such a good name. <laughs> um yeah I think I'm we're so pleased with that we yeah, it took us a long time to come up with that one um but yeah we're on all of the places where podcasts exist and that's more about work culture as a whole so it's not just specific to freelancers we obviously talk a lot about freelancing but that is just about work culture and how we can just make it better for everyone which is just one of my favorite topics at the moment it's a great a great conversation to be having Anna thank you so much thank you so much thank you this is brilliant the show notes for this episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 83. And I'll include a link to the Flock community for anyone who wants to come and join me there. And also to that Insta Retreat class, which is going to be enrolling two weeks from today, if you're listening to this on the day it goes out. As always, I and I'm sure Anna would really love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram and our handles are in the show notes. So do give us a wave. I hope you have an awesome week and I will see you next time.